You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Our sermon text this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. It's a long reading, but please follow along. The words will appear at the bottom of your screen as I read to us God's word. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all my places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish my kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart for him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. And it is given because our Father loves us. Let me pray. Our Father, as we turn now to your word and think about the topic of Jesus as our King, especially in light of the promises you made to the great King David, would you make this your word vivid and bright to our imaginations, that we might find ourselves captivated by your Son, Jesus Christ, loyal to him with all of our being, and delighting in the salvation that he has purchased for us. This we ask in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this week I had one of those very unique Toronto experiences, experiences that I'm guessing don't happen very often elsewhere. I was at Staples 
in line to check out. It's quite a long line, and there was a woman in the front of the line. She was wearing a niqab, and she was frustrated because she wanted to remove money off of her printing card that she had used at the printing station. And there was a woman in front of me, we'll call her Karen, sort of shifting her weight left to right, absolutely annoyed at this exchange, wanting the line to move more quickly. And as I took in all that was happening, and I myself was also growing frustrated, what did I hear? But I heard over the speakers, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. I actually was quite shocked as I took in this kind of multicultural setting of people from diverse backgrounds and really diverse religions, I would presume, as well. In the midst of a city like Toronto, with all of these uh, different types of people congregated together, here we were singing a song, or at least having a song sung over us, that we ought to receive our true king, the one king over all of the earth. It felt as strange as though the German national anthem could have been played. It was, I was wondering, what does this feel like to hear someone sing over you that the earth now has a new king? Loud songs of celebration about a global kingdom that everyone must find themselves uh, thriving under, that everyone must find themselves submitting to. This was reduced to background music. Joy to the world. It's far from the only song we sang over the Christmas season with the theme of a king. What child is this? This, this is Christ the King. Hail, hail, bring him laud. The first Noel, 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 Noel born is the the King of Israel. In the second verse of O Holy Night, we sing, Behold your King, before him lowly bend. Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King. Handel's Messiah, which is playing throughout all cities, really in the Western world, probably in many cities throughout the world. What do we have as the triumphal ending, as the hallelujah chorus roars, as kings and queens and diplomats and dignitaries rise to their feet? What are we singing about? King of kings forever and ever. Lord of lords. Alleluia. Alleluia. And he shall reign forever and ever. This is the anthem that we have ringing all around us. We are celebrating the birth of a king. During this Advent season, we've been highlighting the ways that Christmas morning is for us the culmination of all of the earth's hopes and fears. They're all met in the manger in the birth of Jesus. We've looked at the way in which Jesus was for us a final prophet, the ways in which he was for us a final priest, and this Sunday we are looking at the ways in which he is for us this final and ultimate king. And in this passage, we're really at one of the high points of the Old Testament, certainly the highest point in the nation of Israel. There's much that could be said about this passage where God makes and bonds himself to David in a special way, often called the Davidic Covenant. But for our purposes, I want to look at this passage and observe the ways it highlights for us the deep embedded hopes that we all have towards kings, but also the ways it highlights for us the deeply embedded fears we all have at the thought of a king over us. And then I want to conclude our time by showing you the ways in which our hopes and fears, the hopes and fears of all the years, 
come crashing and colliding together as a king lie in a manger on Christmas morning. So first, let's look at the ways in which this passage highlights humanity's deeply embedded hopes, hopes for a particular type of king. This passage is, as I said, the high point, really, of the nation of Israel, certainly of David's reign. God has not spoken at this length since Mount Sinai to his people. He speaks at great length here through the prophet Nathan to David. In verse 1, the same God who created the world in six days and on the seventh day took a rest and gave to humanity a true rest on the seventh day, he says that David now is secured from his enemies and he's able to rest. What started as one wandering family struggling with infertility turned into an oppressed band of people enslaved in Egypt. They were set free and rescued from their slavery, and they became a a tribe led by various judges, unorganized. They've now become a nation. And the nation is so secure that the king has such opulence and wealth, he has designed for himself a cedar palace, the smell of a humidor in every room. This is the height of success, the height of security. He has built for himself this tremendous home. But the success goes even further than just securing the nation from the enemies and having this financial success and security to build such a palace. This victorious king also has a unique relationship. We see it. What does the king realize in verses 1 through 3? You probably don't remember off the top of your head, but the king is reflecting on the fact that he lives in this beautiful palace made of of cedar, and yet God has chosen to make himself uh, especially involved in interacting with the world in a tent, in, in, in something called the Ark of the Covenant, this box where heaven and earth collide and touch, and that Ark of the Covenant is, is stationed inside a tent. And David said, this can't be. How could I live in such a glorious house when you've been so kind to me? Lord, I will make for you a house. And in the midst of this, God comes and makes himself known to David saying, I I don't need a house from you. Thank you very much. And God says, not only will I not take a house from you, but my unique favor is going to rest upon you even more than you even now understand. God says, thanks, but no thanks to the house, but I'm going to bless you even more than you can imagine. This is what verse eight and following are about. You are going to be so blessed, David. You will be as a son to me, and so will those from your lineage. You, David, whereas previously all of Israel was called a son to God, you will represent the people to me, and I will pour my blessing on you. And as you receive my blessing, you will then bless the nation under you. Your dynasty will reign forever and ever. And is this not just the hope of the people of Abraham, but is this not the hope of people throughout all of human history? Do we all not long for and hope for a a king to come to the throne and reign with justice and bring prosperity and fairness and peace? But even more, don't we long for that same king not to have natural abilities, but to also be so in touch with the divine realm, so uh, so absorbed in the favor and focus of God that the blessings of God come through this ruler to us? Is this not the hope of all of humanity? Think virtually of all of our fairy tales and many of our mythical fiction books. Think of every Disney film. What do we long for? A king like this. A king who rules fairly and justly and brings divine blessing to the earth. It's interesting. 
Because if you think of the record of, of kings and of monarchs in human histories, their record is actually quite abysmal. And virtually almost all kings right now are, are, are just sort of shadows of what they once were. Democracy is toppling uh, monarchies everywhere around the world. There's still uh, areas in which kingdoms are shrinking, not enlarging. And yet, you name for me a film, especially a Disney film, about an elected democratic leader whose children rise up to be heroes. You won't find one. We're still captivated by this idea of a king coming. It's not just Disney princess films that cover this. Think even of, of, of movies like The Lion King. What happens in The Lion King? Mustafa reigns and he is a good king. And what happens? All of the world flourishes under his reign. There's peace, there's prosperity. The grass is green, the food is lush. What happens when Scar rises to the throne, takes the throne from the rightful king Simba? There's a darkness, a grayness over the land. The land becomes barren until Simba can be reinstalled as king and bring flourishing and blessing again to the world. Listen, is this not the hope of all of humanity? I think we know deep down, I think we know that we ourselves lack the skills, but also lack the divine relationship, the the relationship between us and God to mediate all the blessings of God to those around us. And so we long for someone who can do what we cannot do, who can be what we cannot be, who can stand in this place and bring blessing down to us. Most of our dreams and visions have been so tethered. All we want right now is just a leader who could lead in a bipartisan way, maybe address climate crisis issues. But we all know deep down we want someone more. Someone with charisma who has the Midas touch. Someone who can not only deal with bipartisan uh, lawmaking issues, but who can also deal with droughts. Who has some sort of divine favor and under his rule, there are no extreme weather uh, patterns. There is no wars or rumors of wars. Even in a time as monarchs are declining, and even in countries that have rejected the monarch, do we not still crave some kind of king like this? My goodness, think of the way we currently treat celebrities. What do we call Wayne Gretzky? We call him the Great One. He has a name among the Great Ones, almost identical to what we read in this passage. Or think of LeBron James, the great basketball player. What is he called? King James. Our hearts crave some kind of leader, public figure who's larger than life, who can secure and do things we cannot do, who will be for us what we wish we could be. We all long for this hero. To quote Tolkien in The Return of Kings, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. We want a king who can transform and make all things right. And David is being presented as that king for the people of Israel, the one we were designed to submit to. He appears to be the one that legend spoke about in times of old, the one who will fix and make all things right, the one who we deeply hope would come and rule over us. We long for a king to adore. We crave it. We know we can be our fullest self, our truest experience of life on this world under the reign of a king like that. Christmas is all about that king coming. But this passage isn't just about our hopes, it's also about our fears. Where do we see this? Well, God makes an incredible promise to David, but in the midst of that promise, there is a warning buried in there in verse 14. If the king commits iniquity, that is, if he transgresses God's laws, God will discipline him with the rod of the nations. This This is what we fear. 
God will discipline for sins. He will discipline for missteps, for iniquities. And this is what we don't want to hear because we all know all too well being captivated by some charismatic leader who speaks so well, who leads so well, whose cause we want to get behind and support until all of a sudden he steps too far. She goes too far. She's not the leader we thought she was. We've seen this time and time again. Charismatic leaders develop a following and what happens? Leaders start as benevolent and then they begin believing their own press. They forget they're fallible. They can't admit they were wrong. They lose grasps of humility. They misstep. Tyranny, tragedy, slavery quickly follow. Ours is an age where virtually no one trusts in public authorities, where our trust is jaded. This is the fear of all the years. We know we need an authority over us. But rather than getting hurt yet again by authority that lets us down, we become cynical and treat cynicism as though it's a virtue. I mean, think about this. Why is it conceivable right now that you could sit inside a church and from a pulpit you're more likely to hear a pastor mock a politician of this country or another than you are to hear a pastor showing extreme dignity and respect and hope for a leader. This is our fear. Our leaders let us down and it's become a virtue for us to be uh, mocking and impolite towards those who God has put in authority over us because we know they can't be the king we want. And this is our fear. We are people of deep suspicion We long for a king, but we know that this king wears flesh like us. We know whatever king might come and rule over us, they're bound to be caught up in this deep mess that we're caught up in. We know they are selfish like us, greedy like us. We know the greatest of king has more in common with us than different. And this evokes a deep, deep fear. The original readers would join you in that fear. Though for some of the readers, David's dynasty was flourishing. Almost immediately after this passage, David commits adultery. His dynasty does does last 400 years, but very, very soon, David kills a man to cover up his adultery rather than acknowledge his sins. David takes a census and the Lord's disappointed with him. A civil war breaks out only one one generation after King David. Eventually, Ten of the tribes disappear from this nation, and it's a fractured nation. And eventually, in 586 BC, the southern nation, Jerusalem, will be sacked. The people will be brought into exile, and all of these homes will be burned to the ground. You see, there is a king we long for. There is a king we hope for. But the, the world of hard knocks has taught us that we have a legitimate reason to be fearful. Don't buy in too strong. Guard your hearts. These kings will always let us down. But Christmas morning is about a baby bursting forth from a birth canal, screaming as air fills up his lungs for the first time. A baby that is greater than all of our hopes and a baby in which we will find our fears unfounded. Where do we see that in this passage? Well, we don't see anything of the baby that is to come very clearly until we look closely and read between the lines. This passage is often called the Davidic covenant. And though the word covenant isn't used here, it is used to describe this moment in Genesis or in Psalm 89. But in this passage, there's a bit of a play on words and it's a play on words that works in English. David wants to build a house for God. 
And God says, that's nice of you, but I am actually going to be the one to build you a house, meaning a dynasty. And in this passage, what we're seeing actually is David saying, uh, almost like that experience you get when you're at a restaurant. Let's say you're at a restaurant with someone who's extraordinarily wealthy, extraordinarily wealthy. And you, as the bill comes out, you fight for the bill and you say, you know what? Let me pay. It, It was an honor to eat dinner with you. Let me play. And the extraordinary wealthy person says, who do you think you are? Do you not know who I am? I'm going to pay. And it's as though the extraordinary wealthy person says, you know what? Not only am I going to pay, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of your mortgage and every debt you might have. That's essentially what we're seeing here. God is saying to David, don't you dare build me a house. I don't need your help. I will have a house built in my time. But what I am going to do is pour out my blessing upon you in ways in which you have no idea. First, God goes through and rehearses all the blessings he's poured out already on David. And he reminds David, listen, I've, I have lived in this tent for some time. I have dwelled with the people in the hot desert as they, because of the consequences of their sin, I've joined them in their wandering as they could not enter the promised land. And I did not complain once. I was happy to be with and near my people. It was a joy to be with my people despite residing in a tent. I don't need you to build me a house. I don't mind being in a tent with my people. And after this not-so-subtle rebuke to David, saying, you don't understand, I'm not the type of God that needs a temple right now, God goes further and lays out these promises, promises that are very similar to the promises made to Abraham before, but they're even greater. God will take David and make his name great in verse 9. He will raise up offspring and place them on the throne forever. The offspring will be a true son of God, and his throne will be established forever and ever, verse 16. But as Mary felt contractions, nearly a thousand years had passed since these promises first broke into this world. And the Davidic dynasty had crumbled. In fact, Zedekiah was the last king on the throne. And the last thing he saw was his children executed before his eyes were gouged out and he was led off to slavery. Jerusalem was burned to the ground. But God's people had found a way through God's mysterious plan to be back in the land. And they now had a king over them, a king named Herod. He was the king of Judah, but he was no descendant of David. In fact, he wasn't even Jewish. He was a Roman puppet leader. It was a horrible time to be in Israel. The taxes were exorbitant. The people were not free. For hundreds and hundreds of years, people had looked at this promise God gave to David, and they'd wondered, had God's promises fail? Generations had come and gone and seen no fulfillment of these promises. And it was hard to trust, to believe that God was going to be true to his word. But how does the New Testament start? Does it not start the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of, does Matthew's gospel say the son of Joseph? No, the son of David, Matthew chapter one, verse one. And when the wise men come to see Jesus, what are they looking for? The one who is born king of the Jews. And what's Jesus's message from the moment he starts to preach? Repent. Why? Because the kingdom, the kingdom of God is drawing near. The kingdom of heaven is drawing near. See, you can't understand Christmas without understanding these promises that were made some thousand years previous in 2 Samuel 7. Hundreds of years of wondering, when will God send great David's greater son to this earth? When will he send his true son, the eternal king, to come and be with us? Has he failed at his promises? No. 
No, Christmas is about exactly how God likes to unfold his promises. That is exactly what Christmas is about. What does he do? Does he not say, I am willing to dwell in tents. In fact, I am willing to take on a greater tent. Human flesh, human blood, a a human nature. I do not need to come and live in a castle. I will be born in a cattle stall. This is what type of God I am. And I am going to roll out a kingdom, a kingdom of love, mercy, and justice, a kingdom where the hungry are fed, where diseases are healed. (coughs) Remember in Lion King, Scar's finally off the throne. Simba is rightfully restored. And what begins to slowly start to happen? That nasty, barren, gross landscape of of Scar's reign slowly begins to be healed, slowly begins to restore to all of its former glory. Why is that? Because Simba's on the throne. The rightful king is on the throne. Listen, friends, the rightful king is right now on the throne. And because of that, what that means is you this morning woke up in a world where Jesus is slowly but surely and certainly renovating and restoring this world to the glory that it was meant to have. But his kingdom is rolling out. His administration is unfolding in a far more subversive way than we could ever see coming. God's blueprint, his renovation plan starts with binding up the brokenhearted, bringing healing to those who are hurting. His kingdom is a kingdom where the arrogant are first brought low. The humiliated are then lifted up. You woke up in a world where dignity right now is being restored to those who Satan has made it his mission to rob. This is how Jesus' kingdom is unfolding. This is the first steps of the blue plan. A world where rebels see the folly of the rebellion and they lay down their arms and plead amnesty. And in the midst of their plea are met with gentleness, kindness, grace, forgiveness, and a place in the true king's kingdom. Right now, Jesus is rolling out a kingdom in which the lonely find community, the depressed find joy, the oppressed find justice, where the cynical find themselves captivated by hope. This renovation project is underway, and death couldn't stop it. Jesus shattered the grave. Sin couldn't stand in its way. It was defeated at the cross. But this kingdom is rolling out in the most subversive of ways. The tactics of this war are love. And love marches forward unstoppably. It works slowly. It seditiously undercuts a world captivated by fear. In conclusion, what am I trying to say? Let me try to wrap it up this way. This is another unique Christmas. The pandemic has has continued to wreak some havoc on our world and created confusion. We continue to be nagged by this question of whether or not God is truly and actually in control. Not only that, stories of the church this year have flooded our eyes and ears, unmarked graves, church leaders made uh, who have practiced injustice and, and have been captivated by corruption, pastors who've been removed. It's tempting to think, my goodness, maybe Jesus isn't losing in the earth, but he's certainly losing in Canada. We've done something wrong. Friends, listen, our, our communities have committed atrocious evils, and I don't mean to be dismissive of anything that's been done to you or anything that uh, evokes such massive uh, discouragement to you this year. But listen, in the midst of your discouragement, Jesus sits on the throne, and every time throughout 
all of Satan's history that he thinks he's put Jesus into a checkmate. Jesus always not only has a way out, but has a way in which he is strategically defeating and locking up Satan, putting Satan himself into a checkmate. Satan never will win. Don't be surprised, friends, especially this Christmas, when everything looks like defeat and you find that King Jesus truly and deeply does have something up his sleeve. Don't be surprised, friends, if you find that what feels like despair gets turned into moments where the hopes and the fears of all the years again play out in our world as what looks like loss becomes the path, the avenue, the, the setting for Jesus' victory to unfold. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.